You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about the English ambassador to Venice and the Venetian ambassador to England, Henry Wotton and Zorzi Giustinian, respectively. Today's episode is going to be almost a direct continuation of last time. We're going to continue our story of Wotton and Giustinian. We're going to throw in a dash of Henry Pepwell, the King's Man in Barbary, and we're going to tie in John Ward and the Pirates of Barbary on a much more concrete level. The reason I wanted to talk about these two men at all, Watton and Giustinian, is because their documents, along with the Admiralty Court, are the best sources we have on John Ward. There are a number of others, which we've used on this show, Pamphlets, plays, and poems, all about Ward, but all of those are, at best, secondary sources. They attempt to tell a complete narrative, and they may have had access to sources that we don't, but they aren't perfect. The ambassadors, Watton and Giustinian, they really only got involved after the capture of the Rainieri Sodorina. But then they got really involved. It was a contentious time between them, when a breakdown of diplomatic relations seemed imminent. Both of them talked openly, at least to their governments, about the possibility of war. And that potential war was due almost entirely to the piracy of John Ward. See, in the opinion of Zorzi Giustinian, Ward was not an anomaly in English society. He was a natural product of it. Giustinian considered the English a nation of pirates, Those that weren't pirates were either lowly peasants who had no effect on society, or they were direct profiteers in English piracy. And Giustinian was far from the first to suggest this. You know, the Spanish called Queen Elizabeth the Pirate King, due to her policy of employing privateers. Now, in Elizabeth's eyes, that was legal, and it was in England, but basically no one else in Europe agreed with her. The Spanish her greatest enemy, considered Sir Francis Drake, her, you might consider her her champion on the high seas, they considered Drake the worst pirate ever to sail. And they were going to continue to. Whenever Henry Morgan or Black Bart Roberts or any other English pirate would attack Spanish possessions, it only served as further evidence in the eyes of the Spanish that the English were all pirates. Now, that narrative struggled, whenever the Dutch or the French were ascendant in the pirate game when they were a bigger threat than the English, and Giustinian had the same problems. In the case of the Spanish, and as we're going to see in the case of Giustinian, it was a lot like many modern opinions about foreign peoples, or, you know, maybe even better about wild conspiracy theories. Whenever someone in this case someone like Eustinian, or whenever a whole nation holds a certain opinion very strongly, any evidence that supports that opinion will be embraced, while any evidence that conflicts it will be tossed aside. Now, I'm not trying to be controversial here, but we've all heard opinions or theories that we find absolutely impossible, utter nonsense. Of course, your mileage may vary, depending on your point of view of what is absolutely impossible nonsense. 
You could look at an example, an older example, a classic example, something like the Roswell aliens, Area 51. Those theories can range from the absolutely insane to the almost plausible, the sort of theories where you can find a nugget of truth. And in a lot of ways, that's similar to Giustinian's views on the English and piracy. He really did see this vast conspiracy between the English people, who were all pirates, and the nobility, who all profited and protected the pirates. And, and you know, he wasn't really wrong here. For decades, the English had been employing privateers, and rich nobles had financed many of those privateers for a cut of the take. The future will see scores of pirates who were either commissioned or protected, or at the very least forgiven, in the case of someone like Henry Morgan, and then rewarded because the damage they did created a suitably unstable environment. It was an environment that those nobles could exploit to grab up land and make a huge amount of money. And it wasn't just the nobility. Admiralty officials, you know, the actual admirals were usually nobility, but most of the bureaucracy were not. And then there were dockmasters and magistrates, and they were all too often all too willing to look the other way if the price was right. They would allow goods to be brought into England or Port Royal or Nassau before it was a pirate republic so they could be fenced there. And oftentimes it wasn't just goods, it was the pirates themselves. You know, we know all about the captains and the famous names that make up the story of piracy, and very few of those stories end happily. But how many pirates made good? How many names do we not know because they made a killing on one voyage, settled down with their earnings, and bought land in Jamaica or maybe South Carolina? How much wealth was transferred via piracy, illegally, from Spain or Venice or any other nation to enrich England and her people? And you know, aside from a few very high-profile examples, we don't really know. The popular image, the generally agreed-upon image of a pirate as somebody who drank and gambled away their money, who spent it on women and foolish clothes, and that was often true, but how many pirates were smarter than that? How many pirates left the pirating life, when they had the chance, to start a real life? It may be more than we think, but it kind of reminds me of how there are a few very powerful families here in the U.S., that made their money through deals with Nazi Germany, or maybe bootlegging. Now those families are respectable, admired, powerful people, but they got their start through very illegal means. In Be More Pirate, Sam Conifalende quotes Bernard Williams saying, quote, The average man will bristle if you say his father was dishonest, but he will brag a little if he discovers that his great-grandfather was a pirate. End quote. I really dig that quote. The point I'm trying to make here is that Zorzi Giustinian wasn't necessarily entirely wrong. The English were profiting off piracy, and they would continue to do so for the next century and a half at least. And Giustinian took that truth, and he took it... Well, I've been talking about the reality of it, but I think he took it a little too far. He took it from that nugget of truth we might find about communist spies and the Area 51 conspiracies to a place that most people couldn't follow. Places where the evidence worked against him. Much like those conspiracy theorists, he was unwilling to accept any information that might contradict or discredit his theory. And Giustinian saw evidence to support his theory everywhere, even when it wasn't really there. So Giustinian's communiques, his letters and reports back to Venice, are something of a minefield. We have to walk very carefully while reading them, because oftentimes we will find what we need, but oftentimes we will be presented with something that is absolutely impossible. But if we look at the bones of his theory, John Ward, the arch-pirate, was English, and some Englishmen were almost certainly profiting from that piracy. We're going to find that nugget of truth. In some ways, that will vindicate the beliefs of Zorzi Giustinian, until his entire theory was shaken and nearly shattered by one cataclysmic event. This is episode 92, Impending Peril. In October of 1607, King James I of England received an official petition for formal pardon from the pirate John Ward. This date, October 1607, 
is the crux around which much of our story today is going to focus. It's going to bring into question how much any of the players involved in this story knew at any given time. How much did King James I know? Well, personally, he knew very little usually, but how much did his advisors know? How much did Giustinian know? Usually more than he let on, but almost certainly less than he himself believed he knew. How much did Watton know? Usually not very much. He was a poor diplomat. Or he was a fine diplomat, but he was a poor spy. Or at least he didn't care to employ spies, which is a large part of what this question, this crux of October 1607, revolves around. In a lot of ways, it's a lot like the Cold War. You know, the story of East and West Berlin. Spies giving, receiving, and sharing their information before anybody would officially recognize that it had been shared or learned. You lose the advantage once you admit that. And how much did John Ward know? Now, of course, in the case of John Ward, we don't have mountains of communiques that he sent off to the Doge or the King or the Privy Council or the Senate. We only have a very few pieces of second-hand information about what he may or may not have known. But those pieces of information suggest that he knew significantly more than anybody back in Europe would have expected. And the problem here, especially in the case of Giustinian, is how he appeared, on occasion, to have information, at least to be acting on information, before anyone should have had access to it. You know, news traveled slowly in the early 1600s. Traveling by ship, a ship might bring in information that they had picked up along their voyage, but even with that, you had to be unsure about the validity of the information. Perhaps you had to wait for confirmation, which might take days or weeks, which might be why the king and council seemed to be so much less well-informed. An ambassador could make recommendations based upon rumor, but a king or a doge could not take direct action without at least two or three pieces of corroborating evidence. So let's step back a few months from October 1607 to July 1607, when a ship arrived at the Dock of London. That ship bore an Ottoman official, from G.B. Harrison's A Second Jacobian Journal, being a record of those things most talked about in the years 1607 to 1610, this Ottoman ambassador's name was Mustafa. Now, Harrison described Mustafa and his retinue. There were a few janissaries in the retinue, along with a number of, quote, Turks, whereof three only are decently apparelled, the rest looking like the ambassadors that came to Joshua with old shoes and threadbare apparel, end quote. And then Harrison goes on to say that Mustafa himself, quote, hath many changes of garments, very rich, and several turbans, end quote. Now, Mustafa was an Ottoman official, but more specifically, he was a messenger from the coast of Barbary. He seems to have been a secretary to either Pasha Redwan of Algiers or of Murat Rais, the naval official in the city of Algiers. Now, careful listeners to the show might say, hey, I thought Zyman Danziker was the admiral of Algiers, and that's true. And actually, Murat Rais may actually have been Zyman Danziker. Perhaps he was using an alias, and later, Danziker would be known by a Turkish name. However, it's equally probable that this wasn't Danziker. Murat Rais was probably just a high-up galley commander in Algiers, perhaps an equal or very, very nearly equal subordinate to Danziker. Either way, this Ottoman official, Mustafa, carried letters of introduction from the Pasha, Redouan, and from Murat Rais to King James. Now, Mustafa requested an audience with the king and with the council, but he was mostly ignored. He wasn't an ambassador, per se. He certainly wasn't the Ottoman ambassador from Istanbul, and he wasn't even an ambassador from Jerusalem or Alexandria. He was the secretary of a second-rate pasha known to conspire with pirates. This sort of messenger wasn't uncommon, of course. James was a new king in England, three years on the throne only, and by that point, nearly every king or queen or emperor or doge or sultan that the world had to offer, or, you know, at least the world that had any dealings with England, well, they would have sent a formal introduction with a proper ambassador. But after that would come the turn of the dukes and barons and senates and parliaments and councils, lesser governing bodies and nobles from all over Europe, they would all send representatives to the king as well. 
That would take longer, significantly longer, than it had taken for the ambassadors of every monarch in Europe to reach King James, but a couple of years is plenty of time. Then, lesser nobility, as well as any governor or any mayor that thought it might be useful to have some official contact with the King of England, began to send their own letters to King James I. Most of these messengers were politely received by one of the king's underlings, someone with virtually no power. They were thanked by said underling, given a few nights' food and rest, and then sent packing back home. And you know, that wasn't rude. I mean, does the President of the United States have time to meet with every mayor in America? Of course not. You'd almost be concerned if he was doing so with what he was spending his time on, right? Now, the president is likely to shake hands with the mayor whenever he visits a town, and the king would almost always meet the local lord, but certainly not every emissary from every small-time official that came to London. And that's what those letters of introduction were about. Some secretary, some undersecretary, would read that letter, and if it had any importance, say, the governor in question was, you know, the sultan's nephew, or perhaps it was a strategically important location on the continent, then that undersecretary might bring it before the council. But if not, that undersecretary would just file it away. If, in the future, that place or person somehow became important, they would have that letter of introduction indexed and be able to pull it out. However, this Ottoman official from Barbary wasn't like a messenger sent from the mayor of some Bavarian town. There were pirates there in Barbary. They were a problem for the entire Mediterranean. And Barbary was a place of great strategic importance to anybody who had an interest in Mediterranean trade. So this messenger was a little more important than the norm. Not so much that the king or even the council really would waste time on him, but he was given a temporary residence in London something that would last a lot longer than room and board for a few days. He was also given a stipend on which to live, and then he was told to wait. Now, Mustafa was treated much the same way in France, and it appears that he was actually quite happy to live this life. A free house, free money, and plenty of entertainment. See, Mustafa was feasted and fated all across London, all across England. He was, reportedly, quite handsome. He was charming, and... He was exotic. He was a very popular man in the court of King James for the time that he spent in England. Not popular with James himself, of course, but with many of the nobility that surrounded the king. Part of his popularity came from the tales he would tell. Tales of great deeds done in the Ottoman Empire and the Barbary Coast. Tales of mythology that were common in the Islamic world. But what received the most attention of all of his stories was of his meeting with Captain John Ward. See, Mustafa traveled around Barbary for some time alongside the French ambassador to the Ottoman Empire. He was there to show the French ambassador around. That French ambassador, along with Mustafa, were visiting the city of Tunis at the same time that John Ward was still outfitting Rainiere Sodorina, and they met with the Corsair. The French ambassador was, at least possibly, specifically there to meet with Jack Ward. You see, the French had always been immune from any Ottoman piracy. The Franco-Ottoman alliance was still in effect, and the French ambassador wanted to secure the favorable protection that they had once had. He wanted to ensure that French shipping would be safe from any pirates operating out of any Ottoman Barbary city-state. Now, that should have been a relatively simple piece of diplomacy. In any other time, it would have been a bag of coins in the right hands, and all of a sudden you have nothing left to worry about. But when he brought up that possibility to Jack Ward, the pirate responded to him, incredulous at even being asked, quote, I, favorable to the French? I tell you, if I should meet my own father at sea, I should rob him and sell him when I had done. End quote. So that didn't go over. But, even though the Frenchman had been rebuffed, the Ottoman, there in Tunis, Mustafa, was planning a trip to England, the homeland of Jack Ward. So Mustafa asked Jack Ward if Ward would like Mustafa to see if he could secure a pardon from the King of England. Ward's reply seems to have been a bit less vitriolic, but still negative. He said, quote, that he would never see England again, but he would be buried in the sea. End quote. 
Now, this story reached England at the very earliest in July, 1607. That was when Mustafa arrived in London. However, just a few months later in October, we would find out that John Ward was seeking that official pardon. So, you know, what's the deal with Mustafa's story here? Was he lying? Was he just not telling the truth? You know, perhaps he may have been weaving a tale that would delight and shock his listeners with this callous, fierce, uncaring pirate Jack Ward. Or perhaps John Ward was playing some sort of devilish and intricate game with his men and Mustafa and King James himself, a game to which only he knew the outcome. Or then, it's possible that in the time it took Mustafa to go from Barbary to England, and remember he spent time in France and visited with all sorts of the nobility there as well, so it took him a while, but perhaps in the time it took him to get to London, something had happened. Something that gave John Ward a change of heart. And right there is where the timeline starts to get all screwy. If that were what happened, and there is an obvious event coming up to make John Ward change his mind, it would make sense, but it doesn't quite fit the timeline. Regardless, some historians still believe that due to some of these questions of spies and how long it took official communications to move, that that might actually be what happened here. But more on that later. Let's look at the first two options. First, it is entirely possible that Mustafa was just spinning a yarn, and John Ward never said any of those things. That would be a very easy answer. It would explain quite a bit. Mustafa arrived in July, word of John Ward's request for pardon in October. So if he were lying, it seems that, however exciting his tales may have been to the people of London, John Ward just blew a hole in it. However, as easy as that answer is we can't verify it. We can't prove that he was lying here, so we have to operate off of the assumption that Mustafa was telling the truth, and that Jack Ward really told him that he never intended to see England. So let's look at the second option, the possibility that John Ward was spinning that web of deception. Author Greg Bach writes in his book Barbary Pirate, quote, Whatever the true nature of Mustafa's mission, he had unwittingly become the pawn of a more subtle player. John Ward had relied on this garrulous charlatan to spread word of his publicly declared intention to live out his days in Tunis and be buried in the sea. In secret, however, Ward had matured a plan to negotiate the purchase of a royal pardon from James." We've talked before about John Ward's declarations upon receipt of the Soderina that he was the master of the seas and of his belief that no navy would dare stand against his new warship. And if that were true, if John Ward actually held those beliefs, why would he be seeking pardon now? There are some potential reasons. You know, maybe he was homesick. He still had a wife living in England, after all. He might just want to die by her side, in his home country, that's a reasonable assumption to make about any person. However, Zorzi Giustinian's conspiracy theories begin to pick up steam here and contradict that possibility. See, he actually received a copy of John Ward's request for pardon on his desk. It was his right as the Venetian ambassador. He was personally engaged in all of the business with John Ward, so he didn't even have to ask for it. But he didn't like anything about this request for pardon. Regardless of his opinions, though, that pardon request was working its way up the chain of command in the Admiralty. Now, naturally, King James could have just granted it. He was the king, after all. But he was wise enough, or at least he was weak enough, to put the request for pardon through the rungs of diplomacy in the government body that dealt with ships and the sea, and pirates. And, perhaps shockingly, most of the Admiralty seemed to support it. Giustinian's belief, and he was probably right here, was that the Admiralty planned to agree to the pardon. They planned to allow Ward and his men back into England. In return, though, each man, from Ward on down, would have to pay a hefty fine, amounting to a significant percentage of their stolen wealth. The Admiralty would allow them in and then gather all necessary information pertaining to their crimes including the prizes captured and how many shares each man was owed, 
and then the Admiralty would have them pay back a percentage of those shares. But, and this is a big but here, these pirates wouldn't be paying those fines to the injured parties, to the ship owners or those enslaved. They would be paying those fines, that retribution money, to the English Admiralty. Say John Ward and his men captured a Venetian ship. They took all of the cargo on board, as well as the entire crew prisoner. They stole the ship, sold all the men into slavery, and then all of the profit made on all of those ventures would not go to the Venetians, not to those enslaved. It would go to a few rich people back in England. And in a, you know, sort of greedy, mercenary way, it makes sense. See, the Admiralty hadn't been receiving all of the income that they once had. A huge percent of the Admiralty's budget under Queen Elizabeth had come from privateering. In fact, most of it had. Elizabeth never spent her own money on the Admiralty. Not really. You know, she would graciously accept everything that the privateers owed to her, the monarch, and then the Admiralty would go ahead and get most of it. That's how it worked in theory. In actual fact, the Admiralty was the body responsible for deciding just how much the privateers owed and collecting it. So, in theory, the Admiralty collected all of the money, gave it to their monarch, and then she paid the Admiralty their due. But, in point of fact, the Admiralty just decided how much they were owed and collected the money, and then gave Elizabeth a percentage of that. That was a simple system that kept everyone moving through in a timely manner, it made everybody happy, it made everybody money, and it kept Elizabeth as the most powerful and most respected and most loved person in England, you know, without her actually having to do anything aside from occasionally collect some money. It was perfect. But then King James outlawed privateering. Hence, all of the pirate problems that the Admiralty suddenly had to deal with. In essence, what James did here was massively cut the budget of the Admiralty while giving them an endless number of headaches that they had to deal with. So you might not be surprised to learn that, later on, many within the Admiralty, in fact the majority, at one point, sided with the rebels in the Civil War. Now, James did up the budget that the Admiralty actually received from the Crown, but that's from virtually nothing to very, very little. It was pennies compared to what they had been getting from the privateers. So when James sent this request for pardon across the decks of the officials at the Admiralty, they all realized that they might just be able to have a little taste of the old days to get some of that sweet, sweet foreign money. But then, of course, it didn't belong to them. It was mostly Venetian, with bits of Spanish and French and even Ottoman loot sprinkled in, among others. So why should the English get this windfall when almost none of the money actually belonged to them? That was the question that Giustinian wanted answered. When he received that request for pardon from John Ward, you know, let's for a moment overlook Venetian honor, his own personal honor, the need of the Venetian people to get their loved ones back from the slavery into which they had been sold. Let's overlook all of those things, which this pardon did as well, and just look at the money. It's absolutely unacceptable in the eyes of anyone from Venice, especially the ambassador. So he wrote back to Venice about this pardon, to the Doge and the Senate, and he told them all about this plan that was being cooked up. And that was when he began to loudly, vociferously, attack England as a nation of pirates. He wrote at length about their plans and the network of bribery that pervaded the English government. He wrote, quote, The king is so devoted to the chase, and when he says the chase here, he probably means the hunt, at least at face value, but he also may be alluding to King James' many affairs. The king is so devoted to the chase that he leaves all to his counselors. The power of the Privy Council was never greater than now, by reason of the king's carelessness of rule. The council dealeth with all things, not only affairs of state, but money, and also justice, so that whoso would attain anything, he must be protected by the lords of the council, and that by means of presents and gifts. And he goes on, quote, These gifts they take not only from the subject, but as well from strangers and ambassadors and princes, which breeds a great hatred for these lords. Of the lords of the council, the greatest is Sir Robert Cecil, Earl of Salisbury, 
secretary of state, whose authority is so absolute that he may be called king indeed. End quote. We've talked about Cecil before, in the lead-up to the English Civil War and the Thirty Years' War in particular. He was almost certainly the most powerful man in England, but Giustinian conceded that there was another man of perhaps equal importance in England when it came to dealings with Ward, a man named Charles Howard Effingham, 1st Earl of Nottingham and Lord High Admiral of England. Effingham had a long and distinguished career. He had shared power with Admiral Francis Drake during the invasion of the Spanish Armada, but after the invasion, when Drake had gone on the offensive, back to privateering essentially, Effingham had been promoted to Lord High Admiral, and that made him officially Drake's boss. And that was still the role he served in, the most powerful naval role in England. And remember, there still wasn't a Royal Navy of England. King James had his own private navy, of which he was commander, but so did Effingham, and Effingham's navy was significantly larger. Many of the Lord Admirals had their own navies, but Effingham's eclipsed all of them. That's what made him the most powerful naval official in England. Cecil, the most powerful man in England, typically deferred to Effingham on any matter that pertained to the sea. Thus, you know, so did the king. And now, Effingham was pushing to accept Jack Ward's request for a pardon. Now, King James, or, you know, in reality, Lord Cecil, was no fool here. This went beyond typical admiralty business. This was something that could potentially affect international relations. He couldn't just sign off on this as he would most things that Effingham suggested. So before agreeing to anything, Cecil sent off word to Henry Wotton, the English ambassador in Venice. Wotton was to go before the Doge of Venice and the Senate, and he was to present to them the potential pardon of Jack Ward. Now, he wasn't to be an idiot about it, of course. He was to use hints. He was to make suggestions about the possibility of a pardon, and to imply, but by no means to make anything even resembling a promise to which England could be held, that the Venetian Republic could receive a sizable payment for the return of Jack Ward. And here's where the conspiratorial nature of Zorzi Giustinian and reality begin to come into conflict. It was common sense, for Watton not to broach the subject of John Ward's pardon directly. It was really just how business was done. See, if the pardon was directly rejected by Venice, then King and Council would have an out. They'd be protected. They hadn't actually told their ambassador to say anything about this. Of course not. They had no intentions of pardoning Ward. The ambassador was just being an industrious agent who merely heard about the possibility and brought it before you on his own merit. And of course he's not to make any direct mention of recompense. First of all, that would just be crude. But second of all, anything that he said could potentially harm any future discussions that might be had about exactly how much Venice was owed. Now, Watton did as asked, but Watton was not a clever or subtle player of this game. Even worse, because of his counterpart's many letters insisting upon the dishonest, criminal, and piratical nature of all Englishmen, the Doge and the Senate, well, they believed that Watton was hedging and lying. They believed that they would receive no payments at all. They had an attitude sort of like, can you guys believe how stupid he thinks we all are? So, the Venetians countered. They said that they would only consent to the pardon of Jack Ward if they received, if Venice received, the full cost of all men, ships, and cargo that had been lost at sea. In addition, they required a payment for damages to use in rescuing their enslaved countrymen, and then they required a compensation for all of the work that they were going to have to do in that regard. This was... well, that's a lot of money and they said that they were unwilling to budge on any of it. That's impossible. That's an impossible demand. Ward certainly didn't have that kind of money, not equal to everything he'd taken. All his wealth, all the wealth of his men, all of that combined, well, that wouldn't even come close to everything that had been taken from the Venetians. Remember, they all spent a lot of it. They all gambled a lot of it away, drank a lot of it away, spent it on women, and some of them, as discussed earlier, may have settled down there in Tunis. 
So any of those shares for the people who didn't want to accept this pardon? Well, that's just automatically out. As I said, it's impossible. That money just didn't exist, not at that level. And even if it did, John Ward would never have consented to anything like that. And even if he did, let's assume, let's pretend, that he did have all that money and he was willing to pay all of that money back to Venice just to get back into England. Then there's the extra money. The damages that would be required. The extra fee for all of the work required. England would have to cover that. The Admiralty in particular. This was, well, it was just a non-starter. They'd essentially said no. If you can give us this, we'll take it, but we know you can't give it to us. And that was on purpose. Venice had no intention of allowing John Ward to go free. See, they had already assembled a fleet of dozens of giant Venetian warships. They were all equal to, or in some cases larger than, the Rainiera Isodorina. And every last one of them was intended for war, built for war. It wasn't just some refitted merchantman like the Sodorina. This was a fleet built to kill a pirate. They wanted Ward dead. So John Watton, having received this information, hung his head and left. And then on the next day, 15 November 1607, Watton returned to the Senate. Perhaps all of his dancing around the subject with hints and suggestions had backfired on him. It had, and that's actually a good thought on his part, I give him some credit for it, but he took that idea the wrong way. He got a lot more direct about the whole, look, you guys are still going to get some money thing, but he was still vague about it. And the Senate was displeased. He was wasting their valuable time. They'd told him they were unwilling to budge. At some point, they may have been willing to budge, even accept the pardon of John Ward had the payment seemed fair. But Watton had lost their trust, and now, coming back to them, he seemed like a con man, and what's worse, a con man who had no respect for their intelligence. And then they dropped a bombshell on the ambassador. Everything that Watton had presented relied upon John Ward waiting for this pardon, and they told the ambassador that Jack Ward wasn't even in Tunis anymore. Watton's information was out of date. Not only was it out of date, it appeared to be a lie. See, if Jack Ward was indeed seeking a pardon from the King of England, then why had word of the Rainiera Isodorina, a Venetian ship, capturing two additional Venetian ships, reached the ears of the Senate since they had last spoken, since last night? This had just come, and Watton was attempting to convince them to take a penance. Well, he didn't have a leg to stand on. His information was out of date. He didn't know about any of this. But the Senate, the Venetian Senate, said they knew just where Jack Ward was and they knew where he was going to be. They hinted, much more cleverly than Watton would ever have been able to, that this spelled the end for the arch-pirate John Ward. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
the records of this encounter between Watton and the Venetian Senate have sort of a spitting, violent quality, as if the Venetians took every word that their ambassador, Giustinian, had told them about English greed and English bribery. They had taken every bit of it, eaten it up, and they were outraged by it. They had refused to let the admiralty profit from their loss, and Henry Watton had failed. So, if the English ambassador to Venice wasn't going to get anywhere, they had to take another tack. In later November 1607, King James summoned the Venetian ambassador, Zorzi Giustinian, to a meeting. Naturally, Lord Cecil, the man who told the king that this meeting was necessary and planned it in the first place, was there, silently waiting behind the king. The letter that Giustinian would later write back to the Doge and Senate about this meeting is fascinating. Half of the letter is written in Italian. That's a language that anyone in England might be able to read. The other half, and it's not split directly in half, it'll go sentence by sentence sometimes, the other half is written in a cipher, known only to Giustinian and a few agents within the Venetian Senate. The parts written in plain Italian are... Well, they're boring. Giustinian praises the English king as a wise ruler of his people, even though, of course, he wasn't, and in theory, the king should never ever see this letter in the first place. But Giustinian knew that Cecil spoke Italian very well. So, Giustinian says that he impressed upon the king, in plain Italian, at this meeting that there was a need of any king, of any ruler, to follow their law, to keep their realm secure. This was, of course, just a random platitude that came to the mind of the Venetian ambassador that had nothing to do with the pirate Jack Ward. It would have been uncouth to discuss matters of royal policy directly with the king. So instead, he just delivered all of these vagaries about piracy. You know, it's bad. Of course, that had nothing to do with any real pirates out there. Just my thought on the pirates, you know. And then there were... suggestions delivered much more tactfully than Watton, even more tactfully than the Venetian Senate, but suggestions that the continuing peace and friendly relations, as well as the preferential free trade agreement between England and Venice, hinged on some of these vague platitudes about the pirates at sea. But of course, Giustinian never said any of that. The king was receptive to these arguments. Of course he was. The king was a wise ruler, didn't I say? Oh, and he's handsome too. Just a dashing figure, that King James. And then Giustinian starts in with the cipher. Earlier, when he was writing back to Venice about how the king was an idiot who loved the hunt more than governance and how he was so weak that Cecil was basically running the show, yeah, that was all in this letter, in the cipher. Giustinian said, in cipher, that after the meeting with the king, Lord Cecil pulled him aside. Cecil could be much more direct, and vice versa, about the realities about which they had been speaking in, well, almost in code. Cecil suggested that he had a personal word from Venice that the Doge and Senate intended to agree to the pardon. The word they had sent following the disastrous meeting with Watton had been overturned. Now, of course, he had no evidence of this, you know, you couldn't just release things like that. This was a personal word from one of his personal agents. And all of that spy versus spy, Cold War intrigue starts to seep back in. And then Cecil suggested, in fact, Cecil threatened that the pardon was ready to go here. Everyone had agreed to it, all the lords of the admiralty, himself, the king, as well as the Venetians, remember, as he said, though he couldn't prove it, and if Giustinian refused to give his consent, if he stood against the tide, that tide would wash him away. And not only Giustinian, but the entire Venetian Republic. He promised, in a roundabout way, that the Venetian Republic would be sidelined in the world of international trade if they did not agree. This was kind of a bold assertion to make. I mean, sure, in a few decades, yeah. England would eclipse Venice in trade almost entirely. Once sugar and slaves and overseas colonies became the name of the game, Venice really wasn't in the game anymore, not on any substantial level. They continued to be a major player in the Mediterranean, but the game had become much bigger than that. But back in 1607, England was a joke compared to Venice. It's, well, it's kind of like 
Imagine you met a meek man named Dr. Jekyll, and you hear him making threats and giving warnings, and naturally, because he is a meek and weak little doctor, he's laughed at. But of course, with hindsight, this Dr. Jekyll would drink some serum, come back, and bludgeon everyone to death with a giant staff. But at the time, this tiny little Dr. Jekyll shouldn't have been able to do that. That would have been impossible. So Giustinian stood firm. He stuck to the plan, what his bosses in Venice had told him to do, and he refused to give any sort of consent to the most powerful and dangerous man in all of England. Giustinian said to Lord Cecil, quote, You may imagine, then, that the Republic will never consent towards pardon. Nay, I am sure that thanks to the provision that is being made to clear the seas of this pest, Ward will too easily be wiped out. And it turned out he was right here. He just didn't exactly understand how. And that was the end of that meeting. But of course, if the first tactic hadn't worked and the second hadn't worked, the king, but actually Lord Cecil, decided to try a third. He called on Sir Henry Pepwell, that agent who had operated in Barbary, gaining all the information he could about Jack Ward, who had recently returned to England. Now... We don't know what Cecil actually told Pepwell. Possibly he just wanted to interview him about any further information that could be gleaned about the pirate before moving on with his pardon. However, ever since getting back to England, Pepwell had been sort of just sitting on his hands and biding his time while all of the diplomats were busy trying to work things out. Until after whatever happened in that meeting happened... Pepwell wrote to Ambassador Watton in Venice and made a suggestion. He said, quote, that on the strength of his knowledge of Ward and even of a certain friendship for him, he was prepared to kill him and burn all his ships, End quote. Watton was abashed. That talk of this sort of, of assassination should even cross his desk was dishonorable, downright amoral, I tell you. Remember, in my estimation, Watton seemed to be a dull, boring, polite, and, I think, not particularly intelligent, if well-educated man. So, rebuffed again, Cecil took additional steps. He asked the Lord High Admiral to contact Giustinian. Charles Howard Effingham did so, and he was less diplomatic than Cecil had been. The Admiral met with the Ambassador ostensibly to discuss and relate news about John Ward's preparations for battle and his strength. Giustinian gives no specifics about the meeting, but apparently the Admiral had access to numbers of ships and men and guns that, well, didn't match those in Venice. He puts it diplomatically, but says they had not yet reached Venice. It was a truly terrifying fleet, John Ward had joined forces with every corsair in the Mediterranean, apparently, and even, potentially, the entire Ottoman navy. Now, none of that was true, of course. This was bluster on the part of the admiral, and Giustinian knew it. He wrote, in the plain Italian that he suspected would be read by the English, quote, Here they magnify Ward's preparations, and the high admiral sent to warn me to take steps to avert the impending peril, end quote. Giustinian never outright said it. He never even said it in the cipher. And the Lord High Admiral never said it either. But there was an implication here. It was an implication that Ward was strong enough to destroy the Venetian fleet. And digging deeper, there was an even more subtle implication that even if the Venetians defeated Ward, if Venice refused to allow this pardon to go forward, if they said no... England might just sweep in after Ward and finish the job. But of course they weren't going to say no, because of the implication. The impending peril of which the Admiral spoke wasn't just Ward, though, but it was the, again, on another, deeper, more subtle level, it was the potential for war. However, as subtle as it was, this threat was there. That's how much the Admiralty wanted that money that John Ward possessed. But Giustinian stood firm. He informed the Lord High Admiral that Venice was more than capable of dealing with a pirate like John Ward. Remember, the ambassador, Giustinian here, had personal knowledge of both Venetian naval strength and English sea power. 
and his reports on Ward were at least as current as the Admiral's, if not better. So Giustinian told the Admiral that he could rest assured that the English, the English pirates, I mean, offered no threat to the Venetian navy. This was a moment where they came perilously close to war, when even subtle threats of an impending peril were being made to the Venetian ambassador, things had gone beyond serious. And in case the timeline here is a bit confusing, we've actually gone back in time a bit. I've been talking about Simon Danziker and the charity and the pearl and their ordeal for the past several weeks now. All of that happened in the spring of 1608. All of this diplomatic wrangling was happening in the aftermath of Ward's capture of the Rainiera Isodorina, and that's in late 1607. Right now we're in early December. But as 1607 turned into 1608, things really began to heat up. There were continued meetings between Cecil, the Lord High Admiral, and Zorzi Giustinian. Giustinian was, finally, offered a bribe. He was offered a decent amount of money. Venice would receive their cut, all of the English swore upon it, and personally I believe them, but so would Zorzi. And if that wasn't enough, if this decent amount of money wasn't enough for him to potentially betray his honor, well, how about this? If Giustinian wished, he could retire to England. If the Venetians would no longer have him, King James would protect him. Giustinian would be given land, a title, a pension, and his pick of any bride in the land. Well, almost any bride in the land. And remember, Zorzi, a noble bride is a wonderful thing. They come with lands and monies of their own, including a substantial dowry, should you choose wisely. Plus, they come with a full retinue of retainers. Imagine it, dozens of nubile serving girls who would certainly be enamored with their handsome new Italian lord, or, if he preferred, they could ensure that Zorzi's household staff would be stacked with young, handsome serving men known to share certain proclivities all of them willing to do Zorzi's bidding, of course, or why not both, Giustinian? He would be a lord, and there would be nothing to stop him from enjoying all of the flavors life had to offer. And speaking of flavor, it was well known that Zorzi Giustinian didn't care much for English cuisine, but this was the Lord High Admiral talking after all. I mean, he could ensure a train of merchant ships that never stopped between England and Venice, they could pick up Spanish and Italian and French delicacies all along the way. Of course, there was one potential hiccup to that train of merchant ships. Pirates might be a problem. Of course, not if Giustinian played ball. Giustinian was not outright about all of this, but he suggested that he had been offered anything he wanted. But he refused. In one of those meetings that came a little bit later, in February of 1608, it was suggested in the letter via a cipher that the threat of impending peril had become a lot more personal. Perhaps if Giustinian was unwilling to play ball after a very reasonable offer, an accident could be arranged. The sort of accident that could never be traced back to England, but that would send a clear message Perhaps the Venetians would be wise enough to send an ambassador who was more receptive to the English. That is how much Ward and his treasure was worth to England. Now think about that. For how many other pirates would England have gone to this level of trouble throughout their entire history? This level of trouble just to give them a pardon. They really wanted these fines paid. Who else in the entire history of English piracy was worth this level of trouble? There are a few that come to mind that would have potentially been worth it. Henry Avery, maybe, or Bartholomew Roberts. Henry Morgan, certainly, and they really kind of got that one. But would they have done all this for Blackbeard, or Vane, or Calico Jack? Of course not. That should tell us just how much John Ward was worth, not only to the English, but to the Venetians. Everybody thought, in late February 1608, that they were on the verge of getting their way. Giustinian certainly thought so. Watton was unwilling to make such a bold declaration, but Cecil and the Lord High Admiral certainly thought so. That Venetian armada was out there hunting down John Ward, or 
attempting to, and they certainly believed that they were hot on his trail. Everybody thought that they were going to avert war by getting exactly what they wanted. But before long, all of the threats, all of the political wrangling, all of the bribes made, all of that came to naught. Word reached Venice, and then London, that in early March of 1608, Jack Ward had set sail once again. This was the beginning of the voyage of Jack Ward that would lead into the tale of the charity in Zyman Danziker. Near the end of that leg of the voyage, I told you that Jack Ward fell off the radar. He disappeared. The Spanish, the French, the Italians, nobody knew where he had gone. And I told you that I knew where he had gone, but I would not tell you quite yet. Well, we're about to discuss that. There is one confirmable account in that leg of the voyage about Ward's whereabouts. Ward hailed a merchantman off the coast of Italy. That merchantman was captained by a man named Moore, but Moore's ship wasn't captured, just called over. Moore reported that when Captain Ward learned that this merchantman was bound for Venice, the pirate exclaimed, quote, Tell those flat caps who have been the occasion that I am banished out of my country that before I have done with them, I will make them sue for my pardon. End quote. Now, this little meeting at sea between Captain Moore and Captain Ward was happening concurrent with word of Jack Ward's sailing reaching London. As in, Jack Ward went out on the account for several weeks, and word finally reached London that he had done so, and about the time it did, this meeting occurred, so they wouldn't find out about this in England for some time. But it does beg a couple of questions. How was Ward so well informed? He appeared to know that the English were willing to make this deal with him. Now, it's possible that he had received word from the English, but there had been no official declaration of an acceptance of his pardon. However, Jack Ward, in this statement, appears to have assumed that the English were going to let him back in. Somehow, he had received word. Whether it was from the English or from one of his spies in England, we don't know. But it also makes me wonder how he knew that the Venetians were responsible. Those flat caps have been the occasion that I am banished out of my own country. Somehow, Jack Ward knew that the English would have let him in, and it was the Venetians that refused to allow his pardon to go forth. This suggests to me that Ward may have had spies deep in Venetian territory, deep in English territory, perhaps a vast network of spies that is greater than anything the world had yet seen out of a private pirate. He knew spectacularly fast that his old comrade, Captain Longcastle, had been executed. He knew everything spectacularly fast. It appears that, in addition to Jack Ward's fleet, the Rainieri Sodorina, the Ruby, the Little John, all of those ships, and in addition to the many ships that sailed under him, led by other pirate captains, there was a vast network of smaller ships moving to and fro, smugglers, really, more than pirates, but smugglers of information. They were likely smugglers of real goods as well. It's probable that it was one of these crews that actually managed to get payment to Jack Ward's wife there in England, which she is reported to have received, although nobody ever proved it. In fact, if we are still working off of the assumption that that second hypothesis was correct, and Jack Ward was, in fact, playing a deft game about which only he knew the outcome, it appears that he was well prepared to do so. He may have been better informed than Watton, or the Doge, or the Senate, or the King, or Cecil, or maybe even Giustinian. He may have been the best informed man in this entire drama. He may have been playing the English against the Italians the entire time for motives that we'll never understand. But it appears, if this quote can be believed, that he did legitimately want to return to England, and he was furious that Venice had refused him that right. So Jack Ward, there, after avoiding Italian detection for some weeks, he went to war. As he rounded the Italian peninsula, he avoided capturing ships of any nation except for Venice. Spanish, Genoese, Papal, Nepalese, French, all of them, he just passed them by. 
That was probably what saved Captain Moore and the merchantmen. At that moment, Ward needed supplies, but he was willing to buy them. He didn't have the time to waste on capturing any ships that didn't belong to his now sworn enemy, Venice. There are other accounts of Jack Ward hailing ships, stopping them but not attacking them, calling them over because he needed supplies. But, of course, who is going to say no to the Rainiera Isodorina, captained by the most feared pirate in the world? The reason he needed so many supplies is because of his sudden offensive. Ward captured maybe a dozen ships in a week, maybe two. But when word reached Venice that Jack Ward was on the warpath, they scrambled their fleet. They intended to intercept Ward and to sink him to the bottom of the sea. English fleets in the region were scrambled as well. They wanted to get to Jack Ward before the Venetians were able to. They realized it was probably a fool's errand, but if they could capture him, they could still offer him the pardon, get the money, and deny Venice what they wanted. But both fleets were beaten to what they sought. On 18 March 1608, word reached England. That word had traveled fast, perhaps faster than any word had traveled to England so far. But England was still just about the last place in Europe to hear about it. This time it came from one Mario Logaletti, and it read, quote, At Marseille there is a report spread by the men of a vessel which put in there that about 100 miles off Sergio, that's modern-day Cytheria in southern Greece, which was under Venetian control in 1608, that about 100 miles off Serigo, they had fallen in with wreckage that had four men and a boy on it that said they were part of the crew of a ship that had gone to the bottom because she was rotten. She was a ship taken by the Corsairs from Venetians and manned in Tunis by Turks and English. End quote. The scramble to reach John Ward meant that there were agents everywhere. Pepwell was on the continent dealing with the Italians. Watton was in Austria dealing with the Holy Roman Emperor trying to get him to make the Venetians see reason. But in the days following the receipt of that letter by Lord Cecil, Watton, Giustinian, Pepwell, anybody who had an interest in Jack Ward that was currently not in England was summoned to England. Along with the King and the Privy Council and a few of the higher-ups in the Admiralty, this small group attended a meeting of Parliament. Now, this was still early on in the reign of King James I of England, but already he was rubbing a lot of people the wrong way, including the Parliament. There was tension there, real tension, the tension that would grow until a civil war broke out. But Jack Ward was important enough. He was big enough news that they were able to put all that aside, put aside questions of religion and taxation, because what had happened to Jack Ward was that big, not only to the people of England, but to the people of Venice, and, in a very real way, the people of continental Europe. A war between Venice and England would have been a dirty and disastrous thing, and it had gotten to the point that they were drawing up battle lines and choosing sides. However, at this meeting of the Parliament, all of that fell away. A speech was given there that read, in part, quote, we take this occasion to inform your excellency that we have news from Marseille that the Venetian ship Soderina, which was fitted out as a privateer by Ward, appeared off the coast of Crete, where she was sunk with her crew, including, it is supposed, Ward himself. End quote. All of the drama, everything that we have talked about today and last week, everything that occurred in England and Venice and much of it across the continent, between late autumn 1607 and early spring 1608, talk of war, impending peril, murder, and bribery, all of that with this short speech fell away. The Venetians, who had been so sure that they would have their way, would get neither ward nor their reparations. England would not receive their cut from the pirate. But there was a bright side, the tension, the threat of war, and it had passed. Peace had been restored in Europe. That is, of course, until a few weeks later, when even more shocking and disastrous news arrived in London. But we're going to save that until next time. For now, at least for a while, everyone was able to get a good night's sleep. Next time, we'll tell the truth of what actually happened to Captain John Ward. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. 
I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has become a patron on Patreon or left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has shared the show on social media or in real life. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. I'd also like to wish everybody a happy Halloween. I didn't have any great inspiration for a Halloween episode this year, so I hope nobody is terribly disappointed. I have ideas for the future, but they involve topics about which we haven't yet spoken, so I don't want to get too deep into them yet. However, safely enjoy your Halloween. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Let him live on in legend tonight.